Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, <laughs> the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. <laughs> I'm Amy. And I'm Dee. And I'm the human sound effects. <laughs> got energy tonight. It reminds me of the... The Grog's trailer replay. <laughs> He's like, really, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> you know, 250-something episodes. It's time to mix it up a bit, right? <laughs> but that also means that we're less than halfway to the third cryptid battle. The third cryptid. And we have some contenders, don't we? We do. get ready to rumble. But before we even start worrying about that, let's get a promo from one of our Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. Hi, I'm Frater Yarmarud. And I'm Zarina. And we'd like to introduce you to Administrism. What is Administrism? As an occultist, for years I felt the universe directing me towards a practice that was ecologically based with a foundation laid out by cultures untouched by the influence of what's become modern Western society. With labels like shamanism and neo-shamanism carrying too much uncomfortable post-colonial baggage, I've decided to take my own approach. Join Yara and me as we research and develop a magical system where we recognize our place in nature with all the life that surrounds us. We want to share with you our journey into a paradigm that incorporates ritual and ecology, anthropology and metaphysics, biology, and the occult. Using ethically sourced material, historical accounts, ethnographic records, and our own personal experience, we want to share our discoveries as we watch administrism grow in an organic blend of traditional spirituality, modern science, and a dash of homesteading, without all the connotations associated with labels like shamanism. We hope that by listening to how administrism sprouts in us, it will plant its seeds into your own practice. This way, you can find your own balance between magic and nature. Because the world needs room for both. And don't forget, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Administrism is pretty awesome. It is. It's, it's a very, very informative cool. and very... And I definitely I don't know, agree I like the way that, he does it. And I definitely agree that the world does need room for both. Yes. So, 
We had a topic lined up for tonight. <laughs> we did. And then it was a busy Life week. happened. Oh. Very busy week. Chad yeah. and I, Chad had tests. I had schoolwork. Dave was being awesome and helping out and cleaning the house and Oh yeah, getting ready for Kylie's birthday party. And so no research got done. But that's okay. Because we always had a contingency plan. It's the Elmo show. This is the show where Elmo reads from the secret teachings of all ages. No, no, no. Elmo can't read. Elmo's getting esoteric knowledge. But that is what we're going to cover today, is we're going to do some Mancy and find our topic. I think this is the third episode we've done this. I think so, too. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. And the other two were very intriguing. I learned things. I got repeats of some things that I knew, mm-hmm. which is always good. It's a thick book if you've never seen it before. It's thicker than my Bible. Oh, it's thick. Thick. So thick. I like him thick. It's 746, including the index. And the index of it is probably like 40 pages in and of itself. (laughs) That's one thick boy. A book. All right. Without further ado, this is... Section 7, The Initiation of the Pyramid. Supreme among the wonders of antiquity, unrivaled by the achievements of later architects and builders, the great Pyramid of Giza bears mute witness to an unknown civilization which, having completed its predestined span, passed into oblivion. Eloquent in its silence, inspiring in its majesty, divine in its simplicity, the great, beer, the great Pyramid is indeed a sermon in stone. Its magnitude overwhelms the puny sensibilities of man. Among the shifting sands of time, it stands as a fitting emblem of eternity itself. Who were the illumined mathematicians who planned its parts and dimensions? The master craftsmen who supervised its construction? The skilled artisans who trued its blocks of stone. The Pleiades. Before we get into that, I just want to point out that this book was put together and published. By the great. (laughs) And powerful Oz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that can't be right. Oh, in 1928. That was a long time ago. When they didn't have the answers to a lot of these questions. That book's in pretty good shape for being that old. Now, this edition was (laughs) from 2003. Three. Which was 20 years ago. It's still in pretty good condition. (laughs) It is. The earliest and best-known accounts of the building of the Great Pyramid is that given by that highly revered but somewhat imaginative historian Herodotus. Quote, 
The pyramid was built in steps, battlement-wise, and it is called, or according to others, altar-wise. After laying the stones for the base, they raised the remaining stones to their place by means of machines formed to short wooden planks. Yeah, I Did hope they the didn't start at the top. Yeah, it would be really, really... <laughs> you know, I would be far more impressive if they started at the top. Anti-gravity machines. I mean, starting at the base is just kind of normal. But if they started at the top, they would be rock stars. The first machine raised them from the ground to the top of the first step. On this, there was another machine, which received the stone upon its arrival and conveyed it to the second step, whence a third machine advanced it still higher. Either they had as many machines as there were steps in the pyramid, or possibly they had but a single machine, which being easily moved was transferred from tier to tier as the stone rose. Both accounts are given, and therefore I mention both. The upper portion of the pyramid was finished first, then the middle, and finally the part which was lowest and nearest the ground. So they did do it backwards? What? There is an inscription in Egyptian characters on the pyramids which records the quantity of radishes, onions, and garlic consumed by the laborers who constructed it. And God, I, they had to be smelly people. <laughs> and I perfectly well remember that the interpreter who read the writing to me said that the money expended in this way was 1,600 talents of silver. If this then is a true record, what a vast sum must have been spent on the iron tools used in the work and on the feeding and clothing of the laborers, considering the length of time the work lasted, which has already been stated, 10 years. And the additional time, no small space, I imagine, which must have occupied by the quarrying of the stones, their conveyance, and the formation of the underground compartments, unquote. While his account is extremely colorful, it is apparent that the father of history, for reasons which he doubtless considered sufficient, concocted a fraudulent story to conceal the true origin and the purpose of the Great Pyramid. This is but one of the several instances in his writings which would lead the thoughtful reader to suspect that Herodotus himself was an initiate of the sacred schools and consequently obligated to preserve inviolate secrets of the ancient orders. The theory advanced by Herodotus and now generally accepted that the pyramid was the tomb of the pharaoh Cheops cannot be substantiated. In fact, Manito, Eratosthenes, Eratosthenes, and Diodorus, Sicilus, all differ from Herodotus, as well as from each other. Regarding the name of the builder of this supreme edifice, the sepulchral vault, which, according to the Lepsius Law of Pyramid Construction, should have been finished at the same time as the monument or sooner was never completed. 
There is no proof that the building was erected by the Egyptians, for the elaborate carvings in which the burial changes of Egyptian royalty are almost invariably ornamented are entirely lacking, and it embodies none of the elements of their architecture or decorations, such as inscriptions, images, cartouches, paintings, and other distinctive features associated with dynastic mortuary art. Hey, that's what I'm studying. <laughs> and in fact, I just studied Egypt and their mortuary arts. <laughs> Synchronicity. What? what? The only hieroglyphics to be found within the pyramid are a few builders' marks sealed up in the Chamber of Construction. The Chamber of Secrets. First opened by Howard Weiss. These apparently were painted upon the stones before they were set in position. For in a number of incidences, the marks were either inverted or disfigured by the operation of fitting the blocks together. While Egyptologists have attempted to identify the crude dabs of painting as cartouches of Cheops, it is almost inconceivable, inconceivable that this ambiguous ruler would have permitted his royal name to suffer such indignities. As the most eminent authorities on the subject are still uncertain as to the true meaning of these crude markings, whatever proof they might be that the building was erected during the Fourth Dynasty is certain offset by the seashells at the base of the pyramid, which Mr. Gab advances as evidence that it was erected before the deluge. A theory substantiated by the much-abused Arabian tradition. Arabian nights, like Arabian days. One Arabian historian declared that the pyramid was built by the Egyptian sages as a refuge against the flood, while another proclaimed it to have been the treasure house of the powerful antediluvian king Shadad bin Ad. A panel of hieroglyphics over the entrance which the casual observer might consider to afford a solution of the mystery, unfortunately dates back no further than 1843 A.D., having been cut at that time by Dr. Lepsius as a tribute to the King of Prussia. Khalifa Mamon, an illustrious descendant of the Prophet, Inspired by stories of the immense treasures stilled within its depths, journeyed from Baghdad to Cairo in 820 AD with a great force of workmen to open the mighty pyramid. When Caliph Mamon first reached the foot of the quote, Rock of Ages, unquote, Rock of Ages! and gazed up at its smooth, glistening surface. A tumult of emotions undoubtedly wrecked his soul. He was wrecked. <laughs> the casing stones must have been in place at the time of his visit, for the caliph could find no indication of an entrance. Four perfectly smooth surfaces confronted him. Following vague rumors, he set his followers to work on the north side of the pyramid with instructions to keep on cutting and chiseling until they discovered something. <laughs> to the Muslims, with their crude instruments and vinegar, it was a Herculean, or 
Herculean effort to tunnel a full hundred feet through the limestone. Many times they were on the point of rebellion, but the word of the caliph was law, and the hope of a vast fortune buoyed them up. At last, on the eve of total discouragement, fate came to their rescue. A great stone was heard to fall somewhere in the wall, near the toiling and disgruntled Arabs. Pushing on toward the sound with renewed enthusiasm, they finally broke into the sending passage which leads into the subterranean chamber. They then chiseled their way around the great stone portcullis, where had which had fallen into a position barring their progress, and attacked and removed one after another the granite plugs, which for a while continued to slide down the passage, leading from the queen's chamber above. (laughs) Finally, no more blocks descended, and the way was clear for the followers of the prophet. But where were the treasures? From room to room, the frantic workmen rushed, looking in vain for loot. The discontent of the Muslims reached such a height that Caliph al-Mamon, who had inherited much of the wisdom of his illustrious father, the Caliph al-Rashad, sent to Baghdad for funds, which he caused to be secretly buried near the entrance of the pyramid. He then ordered his men to dig at that spot, and great was their rejoicing when the treasure was discovered, the workmen being deeply impressed by the wisdom of the antediluvian monarch who had carefully established their wages and thoughtfully caused the exact amount to be buried for their benefit. (laughs) (laughs) The caliph then returned to the city of his fathers and the great pyramid was left to the mercy of seceding generations. In the ninth century, the sun's rays striking the highly polished surfaces of the original casing stones cause each side of the pyramid to appear as a dazzling triangle of light. Since that time, all but two of these casing stones have disappeared. Investigation has resulted in their discovery, recut and resurfaced. In the walls of Mohammedan mosques and palaces in various parts of Cairo and its environs. One interesting fact about the, uh, uh, well, not interesting, I don't know. In my schooling of Egyptian burial rites, I discovered how capitalistic Egyptian burial was. And it kind of, like, broke my heart a bit. Because I always thought of it as, like, this big, like, ritualistic ceremony type thing. No, I just did that shit for money. And I'm pretty convinced that grave robbers usually I, were actually part of the priesthood that was doing the uh, burials. Because a lot of the crypts would get robbed before they were officially sealed. <laughs> oh. Interesting. You want to flip to another one? Uh, Yeah. And there's more on pyramids, too, if you want to get the book and read it. Oh, yeah. Mystic Christianity. That sounds like an oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) And not just for the moron part. (laughs) Um... 
the true story of the life of Jesus of Nazareth has never been unfolded to the world, either in the accepted Gospels or in the Apocrypha, although a few stray hints may be found in some of the commentaries written by the Antinocene Fathers. The facts concerning his identity and mission are among the priceless mysteries preserved to this day in the secret vaults beneath the Houses of the Brethren. Houses of the Brethren. To a few of the Knights Templars who were initiated into the Arcana of the Druses, Nazarenes, Essenes, Jonanites, and other sects still inhabiting the remote and inaccessible fastness of the Holy Land, part of the strange story was told. The knowledge of the Templars concerning the early history of Christianity was undoubtedly one of the main reasons for their persecution and final annihilation. Annihilation. Our brain's unseat. The discrepancies of the writings of the early church fathers not only are irreconcilable, but demonstrate beyond question that even during the first five centuries after Christ, these learned men had for the basis of their writings little more substantial than folklore and hearsay. <clears throat> to the easy believer, everything is possible, and there are no problems. The unemotional person in search of facts, however, is confronted by a host of problems with uncertain factors, of which the following are typical. According to popular conception, Jesus was crucified during the 33rd year of his life and in the third year of his ministry following his baptism. About 180 A.D., St. Irenus, Bishop of Lyons, one of the most eminent of the anti-Nicene theologians, wrote Against Heresies, an attack on the doctrines of the Gnostics. In this work, Irenus declared upon the authority of the apostles themselves that Jesus lived to old age, to quote, They, however, that they may establish their false opinion regarding that which is written, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, maintain that he preached for one year only, and then suffered in the twelfth month. In speaking thus, they are forgetful of their own disadvantage, destroying his whole work, and robbing him of that age, which is both more necessary and more honorable than any other, that more advanced age, I mean, during which also as a teacher he excelled all others. For how could he have had his disciples if he did not teach? And how could he have taught unless he had reached the age of a master? For when he came to be baptized, he had not yet completed his thirteenth, his thirtieth year, but was beginning to be about thirty years of age. For thus Luke, who has mentioned his years, has expressed it. Now Jesus was, as it were, beginning to be thirty years old when he came to receive baptism. And according to these men, he preached only one year reckoning from his baptism. On completing his thirtieth year, he suffered, being in fact still a young man who had by no means attained to advanced age. Now that the first stage of early life embraces thirty years, but that this extends onward to the fortieth year, Everyone will admit it, but from the fortieth and fiftieth year a man begins to decline towards old age, hey. which our Lord possessed while he still fulfilled the office of a teacher, 
even as the gospel and all the elders testify. Those who were conversing in Asia with John, the disciple of the Lord, affirming that John conveyed to them that information, and he remained among them up to the time of Trajan. Some of them, moreover, saw not only John, but the other apostles also, and heard the very same account from them, and bear testimony as to the validity of the statement. Whom then should we rather believe? Whether such men as these, or... Talamus, who never saw the apostles, and who never even in his dreams attained to the slightest trace of an apostle. Unquote. Commenting on the foregoing passage, Godfrey Higgins remarks that it has fortunately escaped the hands of those destroyers who have attempted to render the gospel narratives consistent by deleting all such statements. He also notes that the doctrine of the crucifixion was of extata questio among Christians even during the second century. Quote, The evidence of Irenaeus cannot be touched. On every principle of sound criticism and of the doctrine of probabilities, it is unimpeachable. Unquote. It should further be noted that Irenaeus prepared this statement to contradict another apparently current in this time, to effect that the ministry of Jesus lasted but one year. Of all the early fathers, Irenaeus, writing within 80 years after the death of St. John the Evangelist, should have had reasonably accurate information. If the disciples themselves related that Jesus lived to advanced age in the body, why has the mysterious number 33 been arbitrarily chosen to symbolize the duration of his life? Were the incidents in the life of Jesus purposely altered so that his actions would fit more closely into the pattern established by the numerous savior gods who preceded him? That these analogies were recognized and used as leverage in converting the Greeks and Romans is evidence from a perusal of the writing of Justin Martyr, another second century author. In his apology, Justin addresses the pagans thusly, quote, and when we say also that the Word, who is the first birth of God, was produced without sexual union, and that he, Jesus Christ our teacher, was crucified and died and rose again and ascended into heaven, we propound nothing different from what you believe regarding those whom you esteem sons of Jupiter. And if we assert that the Word of God was born of God in a peculiar manner, different from ordinary generation, let this, as said above, be no extraordinary thing to you, who say that Mercury is the angelic word of God. But if anyone objects that he was crucified, in this also he is on par with those reputed sons of Jupiter of yours, who suffered as we have now enumerated." Unquote. From this it is evident that the first missionaries of the Christian church were far more willing to admit the other similarities between their faith and the faiths of the pagans than were their successors in later centuries. In an effort to solve some of the problems arising from any attempt to chronically accurately the life of Jesus, it has been suggested that there may have lived in Syria at that time two or more religious teachers bearing the name Jesus. Huh? I'm Jesus Christ. 
This is Jesus Pist. And this is Jesus Nist. They were <laughs> Yahashua yeah. or Joshua. Mm-hmm. It is Yahashua. And the lives of these men may have been confused in the gospel stories. In his secret sects of Syria and the Lebanon, Bernard H. Springett, a Masonic author, quotes from an early book the names of which he was not at liberty to disclose because of its connection with the ritual of a sect. The last part of his quotation is germane to the subject at hand. Quote, But Jehovah prospered the seed of the Essenians in holiness and love for many generations. Then came the chief of the angels according to the commandment of God to raise up an heir to the voice of Jehovah. And in four generations more an heir was born and named Joshua. And he was the child of Joshua and Merah, devout worshippers of Jehovah who stood aloof from all other people save the Essenians. And this Joshua and Nazareth reestablished Jehovah and recorded many of the lost rites and ceremonies. In the 36th year of his age, he was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Interesting word to learn, learnings. <laughs> yeah. Joseph, Jesus' stepdaddy, um was the first and only person buried in a coffin for multiple generations. Oh, very interesting. They were against that. They wanted to be buried in cloths and stone. They didn't want to be buried in the earth. Within the last century, several books have been published to supplement the meager descriptions and the Gospels of Jesus and his ministry. In some instances, these narratives claim to be founded upon early manuscripts recently discovered and others upon direct spiritual revelation. Some of these writings are highly plausible, while others are incredible. There are persistent rumors that Jesus visited and studied in both Greece and India, and that a coin struck in his honor in India during the first century has been discovered. Early Christian records are known to exist in Tibet, and the monks of a Buddhist monastery in Ceylon still preserved a record which indicates that Jesus sojourned with them and became conversant with their philosophy. So basically, this is kind of pointing out that Jesus was not actually crucified. Yeah. No. So he didn't die for my sins? Well, I'm fucked. Although early Christianity shows every evidence of Oriental influence, this is a subject the modern church declines to discuss. If it is ever established beyond question that Jesus was an initiate of the pagan Greek or Asiatic mysteries, the effect upon the more conservative members of the Christian (laughs) faith is likely to be cataclysmic. I want it to be proven. (laughs) Prove it, please, somebody. And cataclysmic. (laughs) <laughs> I miss I misread that. <laughs> if Jesus was God incarnate and the solemn councils of the church discovered, why is he referred to in the New Testament as quote called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek? Unquote. 
The words, after the order, make Jesus one of a line or order of which there must have been others of equal or even superior dignity. The equal or lesser value. <laughs> of the Melchizedeks were the divine or priestly rulers of the nations of the earth before the inauguration of a system of temporal rulers, when the statements attributed to St. Paul would indicate that Jesus either was one of these philosophic elect or was attempting to reestablish their system of government. It will be remembered that Melchizedek also performed the same ceremony of the drinking of wine and the breaking of bread, as did Jesus at the Last Supper. Melchizedek? That's exactly what I was thinking. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. George Faber declares the original name of Jesus was Jeskua Hamasiah. He was homicidal, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> Jeffrey Higgins has discovered two references. One in the Mish, the Midrash Hoalet, and the other in the Abu Dazara, early Jewish commentaries on the scriptures. Sorry if I mispronounced those. To the effect that the surname of Joseph's family was panther. For in both of these works it is stated that a man was healed, quote, in the name of Jesus Ben Panther. That's unquote. way cooler than Christ. <laughs> the name Panther establishes a direct connection between Jesus and Bacchus, who was nursed by panthers and is sometimes depicted riding either on one of these animals or in a chariot drawn by them. The skin of the panther was also sacred in certain of the Egyptian initiatory ceremonials. The monogram IHS, now interpreted to mean Isis Hominon Salvator, Jesus, Savior of Men, is another direct link between the Christian and the Bacchic rites. IHS is derived from the Greek it looks like a Y, it looks like an H, and it looks like a M turned on its side. I've only ever seen these symbols in math. I don't know a lot about the Greek alphabet. Uh, which, as its numerical value, 608, signifies is emblematic of the sun and constituted the sacred and concealed name of Bacchus. You can also see... Um, the Celtic Druids by Godfrey Higgins on this. But the question arises, was early Roman Christianity confused with the worship of Bacchus because of the numerous parallel parallelisms? The parallelograms. <laughs> the parallelisms in the two faiths? If the affirmative can be proved, many hitherto incomprehensible enigmas of the New Testament will be solved. It is by no means improbable that Jesus himself originally propounded as allegories the cosmic activities, which were later confused with his own life. That the Christos represents the solar power referenced by every nation of antiquity cannot be controverted. 
If Jesus revealed the nature and purpose of this solar power under the name and personality of Christos, thereby given to this abstract power the attributes of a God-man, he but followed a precedent set by all previous world teachers. This God-man thus endowed with all the qualities of deity signifies the latent divinity in every man. Mortal man achieves deification only through at one minute with this divine self. Union with the immortal self is therefore saved. This Christos or divine man in man is man's real hope of salvation, the living mediator between abstract deity and mortal humankind. As Otis, Odinus, Bacchus, and Orpheus in all likelihood were originally illumined men who later were confused with the symbolic personages whom they created as personifications of this divine power. So Jesus has been confused with the Christos, or God-man, whose wonders he preached. Since the Christos was the God-man imprisoned in every creature, it was the first duty of the initiate to liberate or resurrect this eternal one within himself. He who attained reunion with his Christos was consequently termed a Christian or Christened man. This is talking about back when Christianity was a practice. It wasn't just a set of beliefs. Yeah. These were the actual things they would set out to do. One of the most profound doctrines of the pagan philosophers concerned the universal Savior God who lifted the souls of regenerated men to heaven through his own nature. This concept was unquestionably the inspiration for the words attributed to Jesus. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unquote. In an effort to make a single person out of Jesus and his Christos, Christian writers have patched together a doctrine which must be resolved back to its original constitution constituents if the true meaning of Christianity is to be rediscovered. In the gospel narratives, the Christos represents the perfect man who, having passed through the various stages of the world mystery, symbolized by the 33 years, ascends to the heaven sphere where he is reunited with his eternal father. The story of Jesus, as now preserved, is, like the Masonic story of Haram Abif, part of a secret initiatory ritualism belonging to the early Christian and pagan mysteries. That's actually pretty interesting. Oh, there's more if you want to hear it. And wait, there's more. During the centuries just prior to the Christian era, the secrets of the pagan mysteries had gradually fallen into the hands of the profane. To the student of comparative religion, it is evident that these secrets, gathered by a small group of faithful philosophers and mystics, were reclothed in new symbolic garments and thus preserved for several centuries under the name of mystic Christianity. It is generally supposed that the Essenes were the custodians of this knowledge and also the initiators and educators of Jesus. If so, Jesus was undoubtedly initiated in the same temple of Melchizedek, where Pythagoras had studied six centuries before. So Mel shares a dick, also work with Pythagoras? Mm-hmm. 
The Essenes, the most prominent of the early Syrian sects, were an order of pious men and women who lived lives of asceticism, spending their days in simple labor and their evenings in prayer. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, speaks of them in the highest terms. Quote, They teach the immortality of the soul and esteem that the rewards of righteousness are to be the earnestly striven for. Yet is their course of life better than that of other men, and they entirely addict themselves to husbandry. Unquote. The name Essens is supposed to be derived from an ancient Syrian word meaning physician, and these kindly folk are believed to have held as their purpose of existence the healing of the sick in mind, soul, and body. According to Edward Shore, they had two principal communities or centers, one in Egypt on the banks of Lake Madras and the other in Palestine in Engadi near the Dead Sea. Some authorities trace the essence back to the schools of Samuel the prophet, but most agree on either an Egyptian or Oriental origin. Their methods of prayer, meditation, and fasting were not unlike those of the holy men of the Far East. Membership in the Essen Order was possible only after a year of probation. This mystery school, like so many others, had three degrees, and only a few candidates passed successfully through all. The Essens were divided into two distinct communities, one consisting of celibates and the other of members who were married. The Essens never became merchants or entered into commercial life of cities, but maintained themselves by agriculture and the raising of sheep for wool, also by such crafts as pottery and carpentry. In the Gospels and Apocrypha, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is referred to as both a carpenter and a potter. In the Apocryphal Gospel of Thomas, and also that of Pseudo-Matthew, the child Jesus is described as making sparrows out of clay which came to life and flew away when he clapped his hands. The Essens were regarded as among the better educated class of Jews, and there are accounts of their having been chosen as tutors for the children of Roman officers stationed in Syria. The fact that so many artificers were listed among their number is responsible for the orders being considered as a progenitor of modern Freemasonry. The symbols of the Essens include a number of builders' tools, and they were secretly engaged in the erection of a spiritual and philosophical temple to serve as a dwelling place for the living God. Like the Gnostics, the Essens were emanationists. One of their chief objects was the reinterpretation of the Mosaic Law, according to certain secret spiritual keys preserved by them from the time of the founding of their order. It would follow that the Essens were Kabbalists, and like several other contemporary sects, flourished in Syria, were waiting the advent of the Messiah promised in the early biblical writings. Joseph and Mary, the parents of Jesus, are believed to have been members of the Essen order. Joseph was many years the senior of Mary, according to the Protevangelium, and he was a widower with grown sons. 
And in the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, he refers to Mary as a little child less in age than his own grandchildren. In her infancy, Mary was dedicated to the Lord. And the epical writings contain many accounts of miracles associated with her early childhood. When she was 12 years old, the priests held counsel as to the future of this child who had dedicated herself to the Lord. And the Jewish high priest, bearing the breastplate, entered into the Holy of Holies, where an angel appeared to him, saying, Zacharias, go forth and summon the widowers of the people, and let them take a rod apiece, and she shall be the wife of him to whom the Lord shall show a sign. Going forth to meet the priest at the head of the widowers, Joseph collected the rods of all the other men and gave them into the keeping of the priest. Now Joseph's rod was but half as long as the others, and the priest, (coughs) on returning the rods to the widowers, paid no attention to Joseph, but left it behind in the Holy of Holies. (laughs) When all the other widowers had received back their wands, the priest awaited a sign from heaven, but none came. Joseph, because of his advanced age, did not ask for the return of his rod. But for him, it was inconceivable Inconceivable. that he should be chosen. But an angel appeared to the high priest, ordering him to give back the short rod which lay unnoticed in the Holy of Holies. And the high priest handed the rod to Joseph. A white dove flew from the end of it and rested upon the the head of the aged carpenter, and to him was given the child. The editor of the Sacred Books and Early Literature of the East calls attention to a peculiar spirit with which the childhood of Jesus is treated in most of the apocryphal books of the New Testament, particularly in one work attributed to the Doubting Thomas, the earliest known Greek version of which dates from about 200 AD. Quote, the child Christ is represented almost as an imp, cursing and destroying those who annoy him. Unquote. This apocryphal work, calculated to inspire its readers with fear and trembling, was popular during the Middle Ages because it was a full accord with the cruel and persecuting spirit of medieval Christianity. Like many other early sacred books, the Book of Thomas was fabricated for two closely allied purposes. First, to outshine the pagans in miracle working. Second, to inspire all unbelievers with the, quote, fear of the Lord, unquote. Apocryphal writings of this sort have no possible basis in fact. At one time an asset, the miracles of Christianity have become its greatest liability. Supernatural phenomena in a credulous age interpolated to impress the ignorant in this century have only achieved the alienation of the intelligent. In the Greek gospel, of Nicodemus. It is declared that when Jesus was brought into the presence of Pilate, the standards borne by the Roman gods bowed their tops in homage to him, in spite of every effort made by the soldiers to prevent it. In the letters of Pilate, the statements also appears that Caesar, being brought at Pilate for executing a just man, ordered him to be decapitated. Praying for forgiveness, Pilate was visited by an angel of the Lord who reassured the Roman governor 
governor by promising him that all Christendom should remember his name and that when Christ came the second time to judge his people, he, Pallotti, would come before him as his witness. Stories like the foregoing represent the incrustations that have attached themselves to the body of Christianity during the centuries. The popular mind itself has been the self-appointed guardian and perpetuator of these legends, bitterly opposing every effort to divest the faith of these questionable accumulations. While popular tradition also often contains certain basic elements of truth, these elements are usually distorted out of all proportion. Thus, while the generalities of the story may be fundamentally true, the details are hopelessly erroneous. Of truth as of beauty, it may be said that it is most adorned when unadorned. Through the mist of fantastic accounts which obscure the true foundation of the Christian faith is faintly visible to the discerning few a just and noble doctrine communicated to the world by a great and noble soul. Joseph and Mary, two devout and holy-minded souls consecrated to the service of God and dreaming of the coming of a Messiah to serve Israel, obeyed the injunctions of the high priests of the essence to prepare a body for the coming of a great soul. Thus, of an immaculate conception, Jesus was born. By immaculate conception is meant clean, rather than supernatural. Jesus was reared and educated by the Essens and later initiated into the most profound of their mysteries. Like all great initiates, he must travel in an easterly direction, and the silent years of his life no doubt were spent in familiarizing himself with that secret teaching later to be communicated by him to the world. Having consummated the aesthetic practices of his order, he attained to the christening, Having thus reunited himself with his own spiritual source, he then went forth in the name of the One, who has been crucified since before the worlds were, and gathering about him disciples and apostles. He instructed them in that secret teaching which has been lost, in part at least, from the doctrines of Israel. His fate is unknown, but in all probability he suffered that persecution which is the lot of those who seek to reconstruct the ethical, philosophical, or religious systems of their day. To the multitude Jesus spoke in parables. To his disciples he also spoke in parables. Though of a more exalted and philosophic nature, Voltaire said that Plato should have been canonized by the Christian church for being the first profounder of the Christos mystery. He contributed more to its fundamental doctrines than either any other single individual. Jesus disclosed to his disciples that the lower world is under the control of the great spiritual being, which had fastened it according to the will of the Eternal Father. The mind of this great angel was both the mind of the world and also the worldly mind, so that men should not die of worldliness, the Eternal Father sent unto creation the eldest and most exalted of his powers, the divine mind. This divine mind offered itself as a living sacrifice and was broken up and eaten by the world. Having given its spirit 
and its body at a secret and sacred supper to the twelve manners of rational creatures. This divine mind became part of every living thing. Man was thereby enabled to use this power as a bridge across which he might pass and attain immortality. He who lifted up his soul to this divine mind and served it was righteous, and having attained righteousness, liberated the divine mind, which thereupon returned again in glory to its own divine source. And because he had brought to them this knowledge, the disciples said to one another, quote, Lo, he is himself, this mind, personified. Unquote. <clears throat> it's very hermetical. I say it is, is the... Could that be like the hive mind, the, um, I know what I'm trying to say, the collective, collective conscience or collective unconscience? It could be. This is more in line with uh, the hermetic philosophy, okay. uh, where the one unfolds into two and then into three, but it is the divine mind, and it sends out all these... Um, creations in order to achieve knowledge and wisdom of the life. So when it returns to the source, which is the one, uh, it gains that knowledge. And then this next part gets into the Arthurian cycle and the legend of the Holy Grail, followed by the cross and the crucifixion in pagan and Christian mysticism. Say, it sounds to me like there was no crucifixion. Yeah. You want to hear about this? No. Okay. I'm Christed out. Christed out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What time are we at? Uh, about 50 minutes. Okay. Let's see what else we can find in here. There's always like one section on Christ that we cover when we do these. It's a huge subject. What about alchemy and ex exponents? <laughs> Math man. We get to talk about Philippus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. I like that guy. <laughs> All right. He's got a cool ass name. Is the transmutation of base metals into gold possible? Oh, yeah. Is the idea one at which the learned of the modern world can afford to scoff? Alchemy was more than a speculative art. It was also an operative art. Since the time of the immortal Hermes, alchemists have asserted, and not without substantiated evidence, that they could manufacture gold from tin, silver, lead, and mercury. That the galaxy of brilliant philosophic and scientific minds who over a period of 2,000 years affirm the actuality of metallic transmutation and multiplication could be completely sane and rational on all the other problems of philosophy and science, yet hopelessly mistaken on this one point, is untendable. Nor is it reasonable that the hundreds declaring to have seen and performed transmutations of metals could all have been dupes, imbeciles, or liars. No. People don't lie. Never. Those assuming that all alchemists were of unsound mentality would be forced to put in this category nearly all of the philosophers and scientists of the ancient and medieval worlds. Emperors, priests, princes, 
and common town folks have witnessed the apparent miracle of metallic metamorphosis. In the face of existing testimony, anyone is privileged to remain unconvinced, but the scoffer elects to ignore evidence worthy of respectable consideration. Many great alchemists and hermetic philosophers occupy an honored niche in the halls of fame, while their multitudinous critics remain obscure. To list all these sincere seekers after nature's great arcanum is impossible but a few will suffice to acquaint the reader with the superior types of intellect who interest in themselves in this abstruse subject. Among the more prominent names are those of Thomas Norton, Isaac of Holland, Basil Valentine, the supposed discoverer of antimony, Jean de Mung, Roger Bacon, Albertus Magnus, Quercantinus Gerber, the Arabian who brought the knowledge of alchemy to Europe through his writings, Paracelsus, Nicholas Flamel, John Frederick Helvetius, Raymond Lully, Alexander Seton, Michael Sindivagius, Count Bernard of Treviso, Sir George Ripley, Picus de Mirandola, John D., Henry Colrath, John or Michael Meyer, Thomas Vaughan, J.B. von Helmont, John Hayden, Lazarus, Thomas Carnick, Sinaceus, a bishop of Kamala, uh, Moru, the Combe de Caladrosto, and the Compi de Saint Germain. There are legends to the effect that King Solomon and Pythagoras were alchemists, and that the former manufactured by alchemical means the gold used in his temple. <laughs> didn't really have the golden touch. Oh, that was King Midas. Damn, wrong king. Albert Pike takes sides with the alchemical philosopher by declaring that the gold of the hermeticist was a reality. He says, quote, The hermetic science, like all the real scientists, like all, like all the real sciences, is mathematically demonstrable. Its results, even material, are as rigorous as that of a correct equation. The hermetic gold is not only a true dogma, a light without shadow, a truth without alloy of falsehood. It is also a material gold, real, pure, the most precious that can be found in the mines of the earth, unquote. So much for the Masonic angle. William and Mary jointly ascended the throne of England in 1689, at which time alchemists must have abounded in the kingdom. For during the first year of their reign, they repealed an act made by King Henry IV, in which that sovereign declaring the multiplying of metals to be a crime against the crown. In Dr. Sigmund Backstrand's collection of alchemical manuscripts is a handwritten copy of the act passed by William and Mary, copied from chapter 30 of Statutes at Large for the first year of their reign. The act reads as follows. Hear ye, hear ye. An act to repeal the statute made in the fifth year of King Henry IV, late King of England, wherein it was enacted, among other things, and these words are to this effect, namely, 
that none from henceforth should use to multiply gold or silver or use the craft of multiplication. And if any the same do, they shall incur the pain of felony. And whereas since the making of the said statute, divers persons have by their study, industry, and learning, arrived great skill and perfection in the art of melting and refining of metals, and otherwise improving and multiplying them in their ores, which they very much abound in this realm, and extracting gold and silver out of the same, but dare not to exercise their said skill within this realm, for fill falling under the penalty of the said statute but exercise the said art in foreign parts to the great loss and detriment of this realm. Be it therefore enacted by the kings and queens most excellent majesties, by awed with the advice and consent of the lords spiritual and temporal and commons, in this present parliament assembled, that from henceforth the aforesaid branch, article, or sentence contained in the said act in every word, manner, and the thing contained in the said branch or sentence shall be repealed, annulled, revoked, and forever made void. Anything in the said act to the contrary in any wise whatsoever notwithstanding, provided always and be enacted by the authority aforesaid that all the gold and silver that shall be extracted by the aforesaid art of melting or refining of metals or otherwise improving and multiplying them and their oars, as before set forth, be from henceforth employed for no other use or uses whatsoever but for the increase of monies, and that the place hereby appointed for the disposal thereof shall be their majesty's mint within the Tower of London, at which place they are to receive the true value of their gold and silver, so procured from time to time according to the assay and finest thereof. And so for any greater or less weight, and that none of that metal of gold and silver so refined and procured be permitted to be used or disposed of in any other places or places within their majesty's dominions, after this repealing measure had become effect, or, sorry, within their majesty's dominions, unquote. After this repealing measure had become effective, William and Mary encouraged the further study of alchemy. Dr. Franz Hartmann has collected reliable evidence concerning four different alchemists who transformed base metals into gold not once but many times. One of these accounts concerns a monk of the order of St. Augustine named Wenzel Seiler, who discovered a small amount of mysterious red powder in his convent. In the presence of Emperor Leopold I, King of Germany, Hungary, and Bohemia, he transmuted qualities of tin into gold. Among other things which he dipped into his mysterious essence was a large silver metal. That part of the metal, which came in contact with the gold-producing substance, was transmuted into the purest quality of the more precious metal. The rest remains silver. With regard to this metal, Dr. Hartman writes, quote, the most indisputable proof, if appearances can prove anything, of the possibility of transmuting base metals into gold may be seen by everyone who visits Vienna, it being a metal preserved in the imperial treasury chamber, and it is stated that this metal, consisting originally of silver, 
has been partially transformed into gold by alchemical means by the same Wenzel Seiler who was afterwards made a knight by the Emperor Leopold I and given the title Wenzelus Ritter von Rheinberg. Space limitations preclude a lengthy discussion of the alchemist. A brief sketch of their lives of four should serve to show the general principles on which they worked, the method by which they obtained their knowledge, and the use which they made of it. These four were grand masters of this secret science, and the stories of their wanderings and strivings as recorded by their own pens and by the contemporaneous disciples of the hermetic art are as fascinating as any romance of fiction. The most famous of alchemical and hermetical philosophers was Philippus Aurealis the Avrastus von Vastus von Hohenheim. Love him. This man, who called himself Paracelsus, declared that someday all the doctors of Europe would turn from the other schools in following him, revere him above every other physician. The accepted date of the birth of Paracelsus is December 17th, 1493. He was an only child. Both his father and mother were interested in medicine and chemistry. His father was a physician and his mother the superintendent of a hospital. While still a youth, Paracelsus became greatly interested in the writings of Isaac of Holland and determined to reform the medical science of his day. When 20 years old, he began a series of travels which continued for about 12 years. He visited many European countries, including Russia it is possible that he penetrated into Asia. It was in Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople, because it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. That the great secret of the hermetic arts was bestowed upon him by Arabian adepts. His knowledge of the nature spirits and the inhabitants of the invisible worlds he probably secured from the Brahmins of India with whom he came in contact either directly or through their disciples. He became an army physician, and his understanding and skill brought him great success. Upon his return to Germany, he began his long-dreamed of reformation of the medical arts and sciences. He was opposed on every hand and criticized unmercifully. His violent temper and tremendously strong personality undoubtedly precipitated many storms upon his head, which might have been avoided had he been of a less caustic disposition. He flayed the apothecaries, asserting that they did not use the proper ingredients in their prescriptions and did not consider the needs of their patients, desiring only to collect exorbitant feeds for their concoctions. Hey, it hasn't changed much. The remarkable cures which Paracelsus effected only made his enemies hate him more bitterly, for they could not duplicate the apparent miracles which he wrought. He not only treated the more common diseases of his day, but it is said to have actually cured leprosy, cholera, and cancer. His friends claimed for him that he all but raised the dead. His systems of healing were so heterodox, however, that solely but surely his enemies overwhelmed him, and again and again forced him to leave the fields of his labors and seek refuge where he was not known. 
There is much controversy concerning the personality of Paracelsus. That he had an irascible disposition, there is no doubt. His hatred for physicians and for women amounted to a mania. For them, he had nothing but abuse. As far as can be learned, there was never a love affair in his life. His peculiar appearance and immoderate system of living were always held against him by his adversaries. It is believed that his physical abnormalities may have been responsible for much of the bitterness against society which he carried with him throughout all his intemptuous life. His reputed intemperance brought upon him still more persecution, for it was asserted that even during the time of his professorship in the University of Basel, he was seldom sober. Such an accusation is difficult to understand in view of the marvelous mental clarity for which he was noted at all times. The vast amount of writing which he accomplished is a monumental contradiction of the tales regarding his excessive use of alcoholics. No doubt many of the vices of which he is accused were sheer inventions by his enemies, who, not satisfied with hiring assassins to murder him, sought to dismerge his memory after they had revengefully ended his life. The man in which Paracelsus met his death The manner in which Paracelsus met his death is uncertain, but the most credible account is that he died as the indirect result of a scuffle with a number of assassins who had been tired by some of his professional enemies to make away with the one who had exposed their chicanery. Few manuscripts are extant in the handwriting of Paracelsus, for he dictated the majority of his works to his disciples, who wrote them down. Professor John Maxon Stillman of Stanford University pays the following tribute to his memory. Quote, Whatever be the final judgment as to the relative importance of Paracelsus and the upbuilding of medical science and practice, it must be recognized that he entered upon his career at Basel with the zeal and the self-assurance of one who believed himself inspired with a great truth and destined to effect a great advance in the science and practice of medicine. By nature he was a keen and open-minded observer of whatever came under his observation, though probably also not a very critical analyst of the observed phenomena. He was evidently an unusually self-reliant and independent thinker. Through the degrees of originality in his thought may be a matter of legitimate differences of opinion. Certainly once having, from whatever combination of influences made up his mind to reject the sacredness of the authority of Aristotle, Galen, and Avicenna, and having found what to his mind was a satisfactory substitute for the ancient dogmas in his own modification of the Neoplatonic philosophy, he did not hesitate to burn his ships behind him. Unquote. Having cut loose from the dominant Galenism of his time, he determined to preach and teach that the basis of the medical science of the future should be the study of nature, observation of the patient, experiment and experience, and not the infallible dogmas of authors long dead. Doubtless in the pride and self-confidence of his youthful enthusiasm, he did not rightly estimate the tremendous force of conservatism against which he directed his assaults. 
If so, his experience in Basil surely undeceived him. From that time on, he was to be a wanderer again, sometimes in great poverty, sometimes in moderate comfort. But manifestly delusioned as to the immediate success of his campaign, though never in doubt to its ultimate success. For to his mind, his new theories and practices of medicine were at one of the forces of nature, which were the expression of God's will, and eventually they must prevail. Unquote. This strange man, his nature a mass of contradictions, his stupendous genius shining like a star through the philosophic and scientific darkness of medieval Europe, struggling against the jealousy of his colleagues as well as against the irascibility of his own nature, fought for the good of the many against the dominion, against the domination of the few. He was the first man to write scientific books in the language of the common people so that all could read them. Even in death, Paracelsus found no rest. Again and again, his bones were dug up and reinterred in another place. The slab of marble over his grave bears the following inscription. Quote, Here lies buried Philip Theophrastus, the famous doctor of medicine who cured wounds, leprosy, gout, dropsy, and other incurable maladies of the body with wonderful knowledge, and gave his goods to be divided and distributed to the poor. In the year 1541, on the 24th day of September, he exchanged life for death, to the living peace, to the sepulchred eternal rest. A.M. Chaudard, in The Life of Paracelsus, gives a remarkable testimonial of the love which the masses had for the great physician. Referring to his tomb, she writes, quote, To this day the poor pray there. Hohenheim's memory has blossomed in the dust of sainthood, for the poor have canonized him. When cholera threatened Salzburg in 1830, the people made a pilgrimage to his monument and prayed him to avert it from their homes. The dreaded scourge passed away from them and raged in Germany and the rest of Austria, unquote. It was supposed that one early teacher of Paracelsus was a mysterious alchemist who called himself Solomon Trismason. Concerning this person, nothing is known, save that after some years of wandering, he secured the formula of transmutation and claimed to have made vast amounts of gold. A beautifully illuminated manuscript of this author, dated 1582, and called Splendor Solace, is in the British Museum. Trismazin claimed to have lived to the age of 150 as the result of his knowledge of alchemy. One very significant statement appears in his Alchemical Wanderings, which work is supposed to narrate his search for the Philosopher's Stone. Quote, Study what thou art, whereof thou art a part, what thou knowest of this art is really what thou art. All that is without thee also is within. Thus wrote Trismosin. Unquote. What thou art is what thou art. I think I'm when going thou, to fart. When thou fart, 
Thou is art. Be careful. It may be a shirt. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I think we could be poets. I think we could be poets. That didn't come out as English hmm. the first time. A poet would think we could be. <laughs> I've been having word problems today. After this, it talks about Raymond Lawley, Nicholas Flamel, Count Bernard of Treviso, and then it gets into section 35. The Theory and Practice of Alchemy, Part 1. Uh, we read part of this when we read The Chemical Marriage. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. We were trying to figure out which came first, the chemical romance or the chemical marriage. Yeah. Yeah. I could talk a little bit from the intro of this section, which is the theory and practice of alchemy. Okay. Alchemy, the secret art of the land of Kim, is one of the two oldest sciences known to the world. The other is astrology. The beginnings of both extend back into the obscurity of prehistoric times. According to the earliest records, extant alchemy and astrology were considered as divinely revealed to man so that by their aid he might regain his lost estate. According to the old legend preserved by the rabbins, the angel at the gate of Eden instructed Adam in the mysteries of Kabbalah and of alchemy, promising that when the human race had thoroughly mastered the secret wisdom concealed within these inspired arts, the curse of the forbidden fruit would be removed and man might again enter into the garden of the Lord. As man took upon himself, quote, coats of skin, unquote. At the time of his fall, so these sacred sciences were brought by him into the lower worlds incarnated in dense vehicles, though which their spiritual transcendental natures could no longer manifest themselves. Therefore, they were considered as being dead or lost. The earthly body of alchemy is chemistry. For chemists do not realize that half of the book of Torah is forever concealed behind the veil of Isis, and that so long as they study only material elements, they can at best discover but half of the mystery. Astrology is crystallized into astronomy, whose votaries ridicule the dreams of ancient seers and sages, deriding their symbols as meaningless products of superstitions. Nevertheless, the intelligentsia of the modern world can never pass behind the veil which divides the seen from the unseen, except in the way appointed, the mysteries. What is life? What is intelligence? What is force? What is love? Baby, Baby don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. These are the problems to the solutions of which the ancients consecrated their temples of learning. Who shall say they did not answer those questions? Who would recognize the answers if given? Is it possible that under the symbols of alchemy and astrology lies concealed a wisdom so abstruse that the mind of this race is not qualified to conceive its principles? The Chaldeans, Phoenicians, and Babylonians were familiar with the principles of alchemy, as were many early uh, Far East races. It was practiced in Greece and Rome, was the master science of the Egyptian, 
Kim was an ancient name for the land of Egypt. And both the words alchemy and chemistry are a perpetual reminder of the priority of Egypt's scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge! According to the fragmentary writings of those early peoples, alchemy was to them no speculative art. They implicitly believed in the multiplication of metals, and in the face of their reiterations, both the scholar and the materialist would be more kindly in their consideration of alchemical theorems. Evolutionists trace the unfoldment of the arts and sciences up through the going intelligence of the prehistoric man, while others, of a transcendental point of views, like to consider them as beings, direct revelations from God. Many interesting solutions to the riddle of alchemy's origins have been advanced. One is that alchemy was revealed to man by the mysterious Egyptian demigod, Hermes Trismegistus. This sublime figure, looking through the mist of time and bearing in his hand the immortal emerald, is credited by the Egyptians as being the author of all the arts and sciences. In honor of him, all scientific knowledge was gathered under the general title of the Hermetic Arts. When the body of Hermes was interred in the valley of Ebron, or Hebron, the divine emerald was buried with it. Many centuries afterward, the emerald was discovered, according to one version, by an Arabian initiate, according to another, by Alexander the Great, King of Macedon. By means of the power of this emerald, upon which were the mysterious inscription of the thrice great Hermes, thirteen sentences in all, Alexander conquered all the then known world. Not having conquered himself, however, he ultimately failed. Regardless of his glory and power, the prophecies of the talking trees were fulfilled, and Alexander was cut down in the midst of his triumph. These are persistent rumors to the effect that Alexander was an initiate of high order who failed because of his inability to withstand the temptations of power. This is also known as the tabula... Samargadina. Um, and this portion actually comes from Dr. Sigismund Backstrom's collection of alchemical manuscripts. Um, and Dr. Backstrom was initiated into the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross on the island of Maristus by one of those unknown adepts who at the time called himself Comte de Chazel. The secret works of Chiron 1, in essence, but 3 in aspect. It is true, no lie certain, and to be depended upon the superior agrees with the inferior, and the inferior with the superior, to effect that one truly wonderful work, as all things owe their existence to the will of the only one, so all things owe their origin to the one only thing, the most hidden by the arrangement of the only God, the father of that one only thing is the sun, its mother is the moon. The wind carries it in its belly, but it norse is a spirituous earth, that one only thing is the father of all things in the universe. 
Its power is perfect after it has been united to a spirituous earth. Separate that spirituous earth from the denser crudes by mean of a gentle heat with much intention. In great measure it ascends from the earth up to heaven, and descends again newborn on the earth, and the superior and the inferior are increased in power. By this thou wilt partake in the honors of the whole world, and darkness will fly from thee. This is the strength of all powers. With all this thou wilt be able to overcome all things and to transmute all what is fine and what is coarse. In this manner the world has created the arrangements to follow this road are hidden. For this reason I am called Karam Talat Mekasat, one in essence, but three in aspect. In this trinity is hidden the wisdom of the whole world. It is ended now what I have said concerning the effects of the sun finish of the tabula smaragdina. So that's something to think about. Um, Isaac Newton also has a translation of it. Thank you, Dave, for all of the knowledge that we now hold within our brains. Hey, don't thank me. I was just reading out of this book. But if you hadn't read it, I never would have read it. That book is intimidating. I also have discovered that I'm not smart enough for alchemy. <laughs> Sounds like there's a lot of math. Um, yes. And unless it's one plus um, one, I'm pretty much out of the question. You'd be surprised how much you already know about it if you were to get into it. Yeah. I learned my alchemy from an anime, so... Full Metal Alchemist. Yep. <laughs> I uh, I have to take two different chemistry classes for my degree, and I'm mm-hmm. not looking forward to them. Because if I remember chemistry from high school, it was just math. Mm-hmm. I don't like math. I'm not bad at math. I'm good at math. I just don't like math. <laughs> <laughs> English, I can be shit, be shit. I can BS my way through a... An essay. Math, you're either right or you're wrong. <laughs> like, there's no... <laughs> Sometimes I'll give you a partial credit for partially solving things. Yeah, I've got to take regular chemistry and then I've got to take embalming chemistry. But I'm going to have biology first. But thank you for reading for us, Dave. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. Next week, we, uh, yeah, next week we'll have an actual topic, hopefully, and because it'll actually be two weeks before we record again. And I know what we're so. gonna mon talk about. Do y'all know what we're gonna mon talk about? I can make a guess. We're gonna talk about soup. Soup. <laughs> No, soup. It's too hot for soup. Too, too hot for soup. My soup was okay. It was not the tortilla soup I was expecting. But it was the two tortilla soup, soup you deserved. <laughs> <laughs> it was chicken broth and <coughs> avocado and... Chicken broth, avocado... And large chunks of chicken. <laughs> like and tortillas. Chips. Tortilla chips, yeah. Uh, I had the Elvis Presley combo from Chewy's and it was good. My taco salad was good. 
but the soup was not. Dave, how were your enchiladas? They were good. They were enchiladas. <laughs> <laughs> they were very good. Well, that will do it for tonight's episode. So be sure to check out our Facebook, our Instagram, and our Discord. You can find them all at UNP Normalcy. I have no idea why I'm talking like this. Uh, you can also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash UMP Normalcy. Or if you feel like it, just buy us a coffee. A uh, link for that will be in the description of this show. Also, forget, forget, forget to check. <laughs> also, don't forget to check out the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. You can find all of our, sh- all of the shows on the, in the network at Green Mushroom project.com dot com and that will do it for tonight so until next time keep digging Arabian night like Arabian days unearthing paranormalcy is a part of the green mushroom podcast network to hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com.